We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 541 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, April 3rd, 2023, the day of the national championship game in men's college basketball. Uh, Four-seeded UConn versus five-seeded San Diego State at NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, Monday night at 9.20. Will any of the players in that game do the uh, John Cena, you can't see me hand gesture that is all the rage in women's college basketball off the back and forth between Iowa's Caitlin Clark and LSU's Angel Reese in LSU's national championship game win on Sunday evening. Angel Reese, who transferred to LSU from Maryland. Yeah, but that John Cena hand gesture thing, quite the thing appropriate given that we just had WrestleMania weekend. But yeah, Huskies and Aztecs in the men's national championship game on Monday night. Uh, San Diego State, which, as you surely know, won its final four game in unforgettable fashion. Lamont Butler, the Butler did it. A game-winning two-point jumper from the right of the free throw lane as time expired. A 72-71 win over nine-seeded Florida Atlantic on Saturday evening. An iconic shot in college basketball history. The first game-winning bucket as time expired with the winning team trailing in Final Four history. Each of the previous four game-winning buzzer-beating buckets in Final Four history had come with the game tied. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. We now are in the month of April. It is the month of the NFL draft, but is this the month in which the commanders will be sold? Is this saga gonna end this month? Is this the month in which we will say bye-bye to commanders co-owners and co-CEOs Dan and Tanya Snyder? Well, coming up next segment, I have a lengthy conversation for you regarding the latest in the sale of the commanders of some things that were reported slash put out there (laughs) in recent days. And I'm going to get into the words of the commanders team president, Jason Wright. Yes, the president has spoken 
Uh, he During last week's NFL Annual League meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, granted several interviews. Those interviews now have been released. I'm going to play for you the best from those interviews and comment on that which Jason had to say, including him saying that he, Dan, and Tanya want the sale done. Very interesting. Uh, also, Jason saying that he's not a fan of all of the reports on the sale. And Jason speaking on something that has not been spoken on much lately, the Commander Stadium search. How's that going? Where are we at with that? Uh, also on the show, the rest of your Washington, D.C. area sports weekend. As remember, this is the podcast that follows D.C. area sports so that you don't have to. We do the heavy lifting for you. Uh, I'll discuss the Nationals going one and one over the final two games of their regular season opening series against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park, including a tale of two young starting pitchers for the Nats. Uh, Josiah Gray, five runs in five innings in a 7-1 loss on Saturday, but Mackenzie Gore, one run in five and a third innings, six strikeouts in a 4-1 win on Sunday afternoon in his Nats regular season debut. It was great to see that. Uh, I will talk Wizards, who now have been officially eliminated from postseason contention. Yes, for the fourth time in five seasons, the NBA playoffs will not include our Wizards, who over the weekend lost two more games while continuing to not play a bunch of key players uh, due to tanking, or due to injuries slash illness. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Friday night, a 116-109 loss to the Orlando Magic at Capital One Arena. Sunday evening, a 118-109 loss at the New York Knicks. Uh, the Capitals technically have not been eliminated from postseason contention, but don't worry, that elimination is coming. Another cap segment for you off yet another loss for them, a 5-2 loss to the New York Rangers at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon in a game from which winger Alex Ovechkin was ejected. And I will sort through a wild regular season opening series for the Orioles at the Boston Red Sox. The Orioles' offense was outstanding, but their pitching and defense were, shall we say, rather poor. Uh, the O's on Saturday, a killer loss, a 9-8 walk-off loss. The O's in that game blew a 7-1 third-inning lead, saw left fielder Ryan McKenna drop a routine fly ball that should have resulted in the end of the game. Like I said, a killer loss. And then the O's lost on Sunday afternoon, 9-5. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I have gotten a good bit of feedback to this RG3 development. Uh, former Redskins quarterback and current ESPN, NFL, and college football analyst, Robert Griffin III, our old friend, uh, he last Tuesday revealed that he was in talks to join the group of Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner Josh Harris to buy the commanders. Uh, RG3 said this on the Rich Eisen show. Yeah, imagine RG3 as a part owner of the commanders. Email from Tom Mirabella in Chiba, Japan. See, this RG3 development has made waves all the way in Japan. Uh, writes Tom, while we can all agree that Dan Snyder selling the team is an absolute win, I hope that RG3 is not part of any new ownership group. Outside of maybe Donald Trump, <laughs> I'm not sure that there is anyone else who would be more polarizing for the Washington fan base. We aren't talking about Joe Theismann, Art Monk, or another great player from a bygone era. Robert's legacy is one of unmet expectations, shameless self-promotion, and dysfunctionality intertwined 
with Dan Snyder's toxic interference. The last thing that I want is another reminder of Danny Boy hanging around as we embark on a new era. How tone deaf would it be for the new owners to walk into their first press conference arm in arm with old Bob Griffin, much like Jim Zorn speaking of his family's eagerness to support the team by donning their maroon and black gear. The new owners would be publicly displaying their complete ignorance just as they begin their stewardship of the franchise. This kind of self-inflicted wound would be, in the immortal words of Steve Spurrier, not very good. Thank you for the email, Tom. Yes, not very good. Not very good. Thank you. Not very good. Email from Joe Rosnowski writes, Joe, wanted to give you props on your interviewing skills. You ask concise, pointed questions that allow your guests to expand on their answers and you give the space to do so. I was hoping that you would ask Darren Haynes about Bobby Three Sticks and the possibility that he would be included in any group looking to buy the Durs. What a tone-deaf move that would be. Thanks for keeping your loyal listeners entertained. Uh, Thank you for that, Joe. Much appreciated. Yeah, Darren Haynes, sports director for WUSA 9. Some really good intel on the sale of the Commanders and his appearance on this past Friday show, episode 540. So I absolutely get the lack of desire for Robert Griffin III to be involved in new ownership of the Commanders. I don't personally want that, but a few things. Uh, Robert says a lot of stuff. Okay, And some of it is even true. (laughs) But when he said that he was in talks to join Josh Harris's group to buy the commanders, honestly, I took that with a grain of salt. Who knows how serious those talks were slash are. I often from Robert get the vibe of he says whatever he thinks that people want to hear or what is fashionable in the moment, but also that there's not always a lot of conviction behind what he says. Do you remember the RG3 book? We, in November 2021, found out that RG3 was coming out with a book called Surviving Washington. Uh, the book per Simon & Schuster was, quote, a one-of-a-kind explosive tell-all from a former franchise savior, <laughs> Robert Griffin III, detailing the shocking mismanagement and toxic culture within the most dysfunctional professional football team in America. And quote, now this was the same RG3 who just two months earlier, September 2021, had said that he would love to play for Washington again. He went on the Adam Schefter podcast and said that, quote, would I be open to it? Yeah, I would love to go back and be able to have that come full circle. But am I begging for that or pleading for that? Nah, but if your guy goes down, make the call. End quote. Well, the RG3 book ended up never coming out, and this entire sequence is RG3 in a nutshell. One month, he says that he would love to play for Washington again. Then he's coming out with a tell-all book in which he trashes the team. Then the book ends up never coming out. So take anything that you hear from Robert with some skepticism. Additionally, even if Robert did join Josh Harris's group, and who knows, maybe that is going to happen. Robert's wealth is such that he would be like the most limited of owners, okay? He would almost certainly own less than 1% of the team. His involvement in ownership would be ceremonial. Now, all of that said, I do think that, especially for younger fans of the Commanders, RG3 still is viewed as a big-time star, despite all of the ugliness and all of the disappointment of his tenure as a quarterback for the Skins. Uh, There are a lot of people who remember 
his great 2012 rookie season fondly, especially younger fans for whom that 2012 season is their greatest memory as fans of the team. So as wild as it sounds, I could see there being value for the Josh Harris group and having RG3 as a minority shareholder of the team. But if you are in the camp of not wanting Robert to be part of the commander's next ownership, I would not worry too much about that. Uh, Email from Kim on Dallas Cowboys owner, president, and general manager Jerry Jones, who last Monday afternoon at the NFL's annual league meeting, which took place in Phoenix, Arizona, said of the commander's franchise, quote, it's a national treasure end quote. Writes Kim, Hi Al, I heard your show, episode 538 with Jerry Jones comment, with the Jarrah's comment (laughs) uh, regarding the commanders. I tell you, if your heart doesn't go hitter-patter when you hear Jerry, who a true Redskins slash WFT slash Commanders fan despises, tell you that your team is a national treasure, hang up the phone or the podcast because you ain't a fan. The cowgirls are and always will be our worst enemy, but Jerry steps back and truly wants a decent team here. That was a statement that I for one appreciated, and he well knows what is in Mary Jo White's report. Great reporting, L, as usual. Uh, P.S. I really wish there was some team name that could have been compatible with the Cowboys rivalry. Uh, thank you for the email, Kim. Uh, yeah, this past Tuesday evening, Jerry, a.k.a. the Jera, uh, saying regarding the Mary Jo White investigation, quote, I know everything in the report, end quote. And then NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell in his press conference said that it would be impossible for Jerry to know everything in the report. Well, let's make something clear about Jerry calling the commanders a national treasure and wanting the team uh, to be healthy again. Jerry says that from a place of wanting to make more money. The reason that Jerry Jones, who in my opinion is the most powerful owner in the NFL, is interested in the sale of the commanders is money. The reason that Jerry's relationship with Dan Snyder has, by Jerry's own admission, cooled is money. The reason that the NFL wants Dan out as owner of the commanders is money. None of this is about the scandals or the investigations or bad morality, okay, or anything along those lines. This is about money, including in this way. The commanders are an NFL team based in a top 10 media market, the Washington, D.C. area media market. The business of the team has plummeted in recent years. The business of the team should be a lot better given how many people are in the D.C. market and how much disposable income is in the D.C. market and how many advertising dollars are in the D.C. market. Whatever you think about Jerry Jones, no owner in the NFL understands how to generate revenue better than he does. You got to give him his due in that regard. And he sees in the commanders an NFL team that is woefully underachieving in terms of revenue. And Jerry, no likey. The Jera, no likey. I have compared NFL owners to a mafia. Jerry is the Don Corleone, the uh, Paul Cicero, the Tony Soprano, the Frank Costello of the mafia that is NFL owners. And when you lose Jerry, you are in trouble. And it does appear as if Dan has lost Jerry. That's one of the major developments in this Dan Snyder saga over the last 12 months or so. Well, we certainly hope that you are not in trouble and are well. But if you have suffered harm due to the negligence of someone else, know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you. If you have a case, you should contact Paulson 
and NACE. Paulson and NACE is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611, and when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and NACE that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and NACE treats its clients with respect and dignity and once what is best for the firm's clients Paulson and Nace will treat you your family and your situation with the care and expertise that you deserve uh Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured heck this past July Paulson and Nace won a case for which the United States government must pay nearly 1.8 million dollars. Paulson and Nace took on the U.S. government and won. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit PolsonandNace.com. That's PolsonandNace.com. And don't forget to tell Polson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Polson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Polson and Nace take care of your family. All right, well, Sunday was April 2nd. Uh, it marked five months since we learned that the Commanders were for sale. Happy five-month anniversary. Uh, it was on November 2nd that the Commanders put out a statement confirming a report from Forbes earlier that morning that the team's co-owners and co-CEOs, Dan and Tanya Snyder, were exploring a sale of the team. A bombshell, right? Quote, Dan and Tanya Snyder and the Washington Commanders announced today that they have hired B of A Securities to consider potential transactions, end quote. There, throughout this process of the sale, has been an ebb and flow in terms of news on the sale. Like, we'll have a period of time in which there's a bunch of news on the sale, and then we'll have a period of time in which there's little news on the sale. And as I've talked about, the news on the sale has been all over the place. The reporting on this sale has been confusing and conflicting and, at times, not even clear. You know, it, it now has been more than two weeks since that wild Saturday night of March 18th, uh, during which there were all kinds of rumors and indications that an agreement on the sale of the team was very close to being reached. Heck, maybe even had been reached. Well, here we are now, uh, more than two weeks later, and there still is no agreement that has been announced or even reported. Uh, we, over the last few days, have had a few reports on the sale of the Commanders, Charles Gasparino, old Charlie G, uh, the Fox Business Network senior correspondent who gets at least some of his intel on the sale of the commanders from Team Dan Snyder, maybe even Dan himself. Uh, Gasparino on Friday morning tweeted, quote, breaking latest from inside the Dan Snyder camp on sale of commanders is that they are aiming for $6 billion sale and again, have no problem with a Jeff Bezos bid. Snyder will not reject a Bezos offer because he understands his role regarding the Washington Post does not involve editorial, end quote. 
So Gasparino in that tweet even made it clear that his intel came from Team Dan Snyder. Quote, breaking latest from inside the Dan Snyder camp on sale of commanders. And quote, the number one mystery in the sale of the commanders remains the extent to which Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is a factor. We on November 3rd, just one day after we learned that the Snyders were considering potential transactions with the team, had multiple reports that Jeff Bezos was interested in buying the team. But then came the reports that Dan Snyder was preventing Jeff Bezos from bidding on the team. And now we're getting tweets from Charles Gasparino that Jeff Bezos is allowed to bid on the team. I mean, consider what Gasparino has been tweeting. March 23rd, Gasparino tweeted, quote, people close to commander's owner Dan Snyder say he isn't opposed to Jeff Bezos placing a bid for team, and they have communicated that to Bezos's people. Fox Business has learned from people with direct knowledge. These people say Snyder's animus to Bezos over coverage issues has been overblown. Bezos has yet to place a bid for the team, and the sale, if it happens, will likely occur after next week's owner's meeting, I am told. Also overblown, these people say NFL pressure on Snyder to sell. It's his decision for a variety of reasons. End quote. All right, so all of that came from multiple tweets from Gasparino on March 23rd. Then, this past Tuesday morning, Gasparino tweeted, quote, breaking from source inside the NFL owners meeting regarding the commander's sale. It was discussed, but briefly, that the process is progressing. As I previously reported, unlikely that sale will occur by meeting's end will happen. Snyder is said no longer opposed to a Jeff Bezos bid. End quote. Then this past Friday morning, Gasparito tweeted, quote, breaking latest from inside the Dan Snyder camp on sale of commanders is that they are aiming for $6 billion sale and again have no problem with a Jeff Bezos bid. Snyder will not reject a Bezos offer because he understands his role regarding the Washington Post does not involve editorial. End quote. So take a step back here. Three times in a period of nine days. Charles Gasparino, who by his own admission gets intel from Team Dan Snyder, put out a tweet in which it was made crystal clear that Dan isn't against Jeff Bezos bidding on the commanders. (laughs) It has become almost comical how much Team Danny is using Gasparino to beg Jeff to bid on the team. It was this past Tuesday afternoon that we had the multiple reports of actual certified bids for the commanders, multiple reports that the group being led by Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner Josh Harris has submitted a fully funded offer of $6 billion for the commanders and multiple reports that Canadian billionaire Steve Apostolopoulos has submitted a fully funded offer of $6 billion for the commanders. Now, there are questions about how viable the Apostolopoulos offer is, although sports business insider A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports, he this past Friday afternoon in a report on the sale of the commanders had this quote from a business associate of Apostolopoulos, quote, Steve is confident in his position, offer, and finances, end quote. But if that offer is not sound, and the only offer for the commanders that truly is at the $6 billion level that Dan Snyder is seeking is the Josh Harris offer, then it especially behooves the Danny to have Jeff Bezos involved in the bidding in order to maximize 
the sale price of the team. But with Dan via these tweets from Charles Gasparino continually begging and pleading Jeff to get involved in the bidding, that sure seems to be a sign that Jeff is not involved in the bidding, right? And so you wonder why Jeff is not involved in the bidding, if in fact he is not involved in the bidding. Is Jeff Bezos ticked off at Dan Snyder for previously preventing Jeff from bidding on the team? Has Jeff lost interest in buying the Commanders and is just going to wait until the Seattle Seahawks are for sale to achieve his goal of buying an NFL team? Uh, The final paragraph in A.J. Perez's report from this past Friday afternoon was as follows, quote, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos hasn't bid as of Thursday evening, a source told FOS. While it's unclear if the world's third richest human will make a bid, there are indications Bezos and his reps are still monitoring the process, end quote. Again, the number one mystery in the sale of the commanders remains the extent to which Jeff Bezos is a factor, and it may well be that the only person who knows the true answer to that question is Jeff himself. But until there is an agreement for the team to be sold to someone other than Jeff, you can't entirely dismiss him as a factor because, as we know, his wealth blows away the wealth of any other known or suspected contender to buy the team. But off Dan apparently playing Jeff and initially preventing him from bidding on the team, it now may be that Jeff is playing Dan and not bidding on the team when Danny Boy pretty clearly wants Jeff to bid on the team. Meantime, Commander's Team President Jason Wright. Uh, We, over the last few days, have had the releasing of interviews that Jason granted at the NFL's annual league meeting, which took place in Phoenix, Arizona last week. There are items from two interviews that I want to get into with you. Uh, Jason spoke with Commander's Insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington. Here was the exchange between the two that stood out the most to me. Take a listen. Um, a lot of people back home have a lot of questions about the sale. Um, two major reports, both from Adam Schefter. I don't think we have to question the, the bona fides of the reporting here that uh, Josh Harris-led group has gotten to $6 billion and that a Steve Apostolopoulos-led group have gotten to $6 billion and that that is Dan's preferred number to sell. H- how do you view those reports? Um, I just want it to be done. <laughs> and I think that's what everybody else would like too, including Dan and Tanya. I think this is a process that um, when there are speculative reports, they tend to slow down the process um, because every public report, everything that's written in a heavy due diligence phase of a transaction like this cause people to do more diligence or request more information. And so while I think it's interesting for people to report some of these things, I wish they didn't because then uh, those folks who are bidding, if it's those folks, right, um, uh, those folks who are bidding and the family office as they run this can just move with um, uh, uh, move without, without restrictions and with less hiccups. All right, so Jason Wright on the sale of the commander's quote, I just want it to be done, and I think that's what everybody else would like to, including Dan and Tanya, end quote. Well, that's a significant quote, right? A, because Jason says that he, Dan, and Tanya want the sale to be done. Here, here to that. And B, Jason talks about the sale as something that's going to be done. 
You know, with the caveat that Dan Snyder is unpredictable and impulsive, and you never truly know with this guy, the indications do continue to be that he is selling the entirety of his ownership of the team. That certainly was the intel that we got from Darren Haynes, sports director for WUSA 9, and his appearance on this past Friday show, episode 540. You know, Jason has not been shy about talking about the sale as if it is definitely happening. Uh, Jason Wright to Commander's Insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com this past Tuesday, quote, if you don't see light at the end of the tunnel, you're not paying attention. We are very much close to a new phase and era, end quote. Those were not the words of a team president who does not believe that the majority ownership of the commanders may not be changing. No, those were the words of a team president who expects to soon have a new boss or soon have new bosses. And let's be honest, those were the words of a team president who is not sure if the new boss or new bosses will be firing him, okay? It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with Jason Wright with new ownership of the team. Does the new ownership fire him immediately? Does the new ownership keep him around for intel and the transition and then fire him? Or does he survive? Does Jason Wright last through the transition to the new ownership? Predicting what's going to happen with him is a guess at this point. The justification for firing him certainly is there. I mean, the guy since becoming team president in August 2020 has presided over way too many screw-ups. And while you certainly have to acknowledge that he came into a very difficult situation— And he has, as his boss, a guy in Dan Snyder who is really difficult to work for. You're being naive if you just absolve Jason of all blame for all of the screw-ups that have taken place under his watch. Like, you can acknowledge the difficulty of his situation and the difficulty of working for Dan while also recognizing that Jason, during his tenure as team president, has presided over way too many things that have gone wrong. Uh, The other part of what Jason said to J.P. Finley in that cut that I just played for you that stood out to me was Jason saying, quote, while there are speculative reports, they tend to slow down the process. While I think it's interesting for people to report some of these things, I wish they didn't, end quote. Hey, I get where Jason is coming from in saying that, but understand that the reporting on the sale of the commanders, as wild as that reporting has been, isn't coming from thin air. The intel that is the basis for the reporting is stuff that is leaked. And at least in the case of the reporting from Charles Gasparino, there is significant intel coming from Team Dan Snyder, maybe even from Dan himself. So if Jason Wright wishes that things weren't being reported, he might want to tell his boss uh, to stop leaking stuff. Here was another exchange between J.P. Finley and Jason Wright. Is there something you want in the next owner? Like, what's your kind of ideal scenario? You know, I think all the folks that I've met um, embody a common set of qualities that I think will make for a great owner of this team. One is thinking of it as um, a community asset. That this is, that the franchise is um, more than a business. That it is um, more than a sports team. That it's actually something that has uh, the power to impact the psyche and uh, the goodwill of our area and our area has the power to impact the world and so I think every single person sees this as a crown jewel asset for that reason and that's something that aligns with me as well so um, I think that's one and then on the flip side of that they're business people (laughs) 
and uh, they're looking at the P&L. They want to understand how the dollars make sense, and I like that. I like the analytic rigor. I like the thinking people have brought to it. Um, you know, for the fans, I think any of the folks that at least I've met in the process would make for wonderful leaders of the team. Okay, so Jason Wright right there uh, saying nice things about whoever his next boss may be. But the first part about the team being a community asset, as corny as that sounds, is true. A sports team isn't just a business. It's a lot more than that. And that's part of why what has happened with the team, with Dan Snyder as its owner, has been so bad. The team for decades was something that people in the Washington, D.C. area were proud of. The team for decades was something that brought people in the D.C. area together. And that the team over the last 24 years, since Dan bought it in May 1999, has become like a punchline. It's sad. Should have never happened. Never had to happen. Uh, Also speaking with Jason Wright at the league meeting was the uh, aforementioned Darren Haynes. Uh, Darren spoke with Jason about the team stadium search. Yeah, the stadium search. Remember that? Uh, The commander's current lease at FedEx Field is set to expire in September 2027. Uh, Jason Wright, in an interview with another person from WUSA 9, Chief Investigative Reporter Eric Flack on April 1st, 2022, said that the commanders would be playing at FedEx Field at least through the 2026 season and possibly beyond that. Uh, The team has had a very hard time igniting the uh, three-way bidding war for a new stadium that you know that the team wants between Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And we, for months, have had very little news on the stadium situation. The last significant item was in early March, uh, us having multiple reports that NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell in December told Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser that the league supported her efforts to gain control of the federally owned land on which RFK Stadium sits for the purpose of the commanders and D.C. striking a deal for a new stadium for the team on that land. And so with all of that as a backdrop, take a listen to the following exchanges between Darren Haynes and Jason Wright. You're in the process of transition of ownership with Dan Snyder selling the team. Sure. What kind of effect has that had on you guys trying to look or build a new stadium. One of the exciting things about uh, this transition process is that we're going to have to calibrate that vision against what uh, new owners will want to do. Right? It's it's going to be their project, um, and so we we are in a interesting trade-off situation between speed and acceleration of getting it done, um, where that's easiest if a lot of the vision remains intact, with needing to calibrate the strategic vision uh, and heart of a new ownership group. Yeah, obviously Virginia, D.C., and Maryland. Where do you see this thing kind of finalizing it out of those three areas? Oh, I think everybody knows what's possible at RFK. Um, you've seen what's happened at Nationals uh, around Nats Park and the development of that community. Um, And I think there's thoughtful leaders in DC that think about things like gentrification um, alongside economic development. And and then you've got the Blue Line Corridor plan from uh, uh, 
County Commissioner also Brooks and the um, and Prince George's County leadership that is about catalyzing a community that actually has great wealth. It's one of the wealthiest black counties in America, but it's spotty. And then there are opportunities across Virginia. We were able to confirm that NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and D.C. Mayor Muriel, mm -hmm. Muriel Bowser had a phone conversation yep. in regards to the RFK site. Mm -hmm. uh, what can you say how much the NFL is helping you uh, ensure that that RFK site is available if you guys want to build a stadium there? I could say a lot about the league and their support, but I won't. Any particular reason why? <laughs> As I said before, these are conversations and efforts that have to be discreet. But again, it's the thing I should talk the least about, and I've already shared too much. Good job. All right. First of all, <laughs> how about all of the big boy corporate words and phrases from Jason Wright in those exchanges? You know, Jason went to Northwestern University, for which he was a star running back, uh, then played in the NFL, then went to the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and then was a partner at McKinsey & Company. McKinsey, as many of you know, is a high-level global management consulting firm. So, Jason has this very impressive resume. A lot of people think that the NFL placed Jason with Washington as opposed to Washington hiring Jason. But whatever the case, he uses a lot of hoity-toity words and phrases. Jason Wright in those exchanges that we just heard used the following words and phrases. Calibrate, strategic vision, gentrification, catalyzing a community. The guy is quite the vocabulary. You know, we have a lot of younger listeners to this podcast. Hey, if you're in high school and you're prepping for the SAT, forget about taking an SAT prep course. Just listen to a bunch of Jason Wright interviews, okay? Uh, look, with the stadium search, and remember, the phrase stadium search is short for a search for land on which we'll have not just a new stadium, but also a new team facility and likely a lot more. But with the stadium search, and I know that I'm probably in the minority on this, but I do not think that the stadium search is Washington, D.C. or bust. I do think that a stadium in Maryland or Virginia could work. People talk about how bad the traffic with especially a stadium in Virginia would be. The traffic for a stadium in D.C. would be horrendous. And you can say that the stadium in D.C. being right next to a metro stop would help. And yes, that would. But, you know, a lot of people don't ride the metro. A, because they don't like it. B, because it's not exactly the most reliable transit service in the country. Metro in recent years has undergone a lot of construction and has had to undergo a lot of repairs. And C, a lot of people don't ride Metro because they don't feel safe on it and or at Metro stations. Metro has had a lot of problems recently. Uh, I read to you from an article on WJLA.com dated February 21st, 2023, quote, after recent deadly shootings at metro stations, the D.C. Guardian Angels are starting to patrol at stations and on trains again to try and deter these violent crimes. The Guardian Angels are a volunteer group focused on crime prevention that started in New York City in 1979, with the D.C. chapter being started by John Ayala in 1989. Ayala, now the leader chief for the D.C. Guardian Angels, said they have patrolled metro locations on and off since they arrived in the nation's capital, but felt they needed to ramp up patrol given recent violence. Since January, violent crimes at the metro have included two children getting shot while getting off a metro bus from school, a teenager being shot and killed at the Southern Avenue station, 
and a Metro employee getting shot and killed while trying to subdue a man with a gun on the Potomac Avenue platform. Just days ago, a 19-year-old was shot and killed inside a Metro bus in Montgomery County. End quote. Again, all of that is from an article on WJLA.com dated February 21st, 2023. So I do think that quite a few people would want to drive to Commander's Games at a stadium in D.C., and thus the traffic would be bad. I think that this fixation with trying to recreate the 1980s and early 1990s with a stadium on the RFK Stadium site is understandable for sure. I mean, I grew up in this area in the 80s and early 90s, but the D.C. area is a lot different than it was in the 80s and early 90s. A stadium in Maryland or Virginia could work just fine if the stadium is done properly. And I'll grant you, that is a big if. Uh, And I totally get that most Commanders fans do want the next stadium on the RFK Stadium site. But personally, I do not think that the stadium search is DC or bust. What matters the most with a new stadium, of course, is the team being good. You know, the line in the great movie Field of Dreams is, if you build it, they will come. The line with a new Commander Stadium should be, if you're good, they will come. Uh, But yeah, we're now five months into the process of the sale of the Commanders. When that process will end, we do not know. But you know what? I'm not sure that when the process ends matters so much, so long as the ending is one in which we do get new majority ownership of the team. Like, whether the sale is done in April or May or June or July, hey, I want the sale done as soon as possible, trust me. But as long as the sale happens, uh, say, before the start of training camp, uh, that's what matters. The when doesn't matter nearly as much as the what. Well, if what you need are some new sunglasses, uh, now is a great time to get them, given that spring is here and that summer is coming and that Shady Rays is offering a great deal to listeners of this podcast. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the promo code ALGALDI. Shady Rays sunglasses. They look good. They feel good. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's affordable and durable with clear optics for whatever you're doing outside. And Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses, no questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Here's a special offer for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code Al Galdi for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI 
for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you have been thinking about getting new sunglasses, now is the time. And Shady Rays is the way. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. That's ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Also, Shady Rays has done some great work, has donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. Shady Rays, look good and feel good. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As we have discussed, the Nationals 2023 season is not about wins and losses. The Nats are a rebuilding team. They're almost certain to have another really bad season. You are setting yourself up for disappointment if you are a Nats fan and you are invested in wins and losses this season. No, the Nats 2023 season is about the rebuild, especially how young players, how potential building blocks at the major league level perform. Now, one of those players, starting pitcher Cade Cavalli, sadly is out for the season due to Tommy John surgery, but two other starting pitchers who are potential building blocks, Josiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore, they are part of the Nats rotation. Uh, we, over the weekend, saw each guy make his 2023 regular season debut, and while things went poorly for Gray, things went well for Gore. The Nats began their 2023 regular season by losing two or three games to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Thursday afternoon, opening day, a 7-2 loss. We talked about that game on this past Friday's show, episode 540. Saturday, a 7-1 loss, but Sunday afternoon, a 4-1 win. And yes, I did say win for manager Davey Martinez and the boys. I'm proud of the boys. That is correct, Davey. Proud of the boys. I'm not sure how many times Davey will be proud of the boys this season. So we got to enjoy these Nats wins whenever we can get them. Uh, Great to see Mackenzie Gore pitch well on Sunday afternoon. He and the 4-1 win over the Braves made his Nationals regular season debut, and he was good. Gore allowed one run in five and a third innings. He recorded six strikeouts as he generated 13 swings and misses, and his four-seam fastball velocity per stat cast was at or above 95 miles per hour numerous times. He 
gave up just three hits, all of which were singles. The nits to pick were that he issued four walks and that he, over the five and a third innings, threw 93 pitches, uh, 56 of which were strikes. But he overall did well, especially considering that he, over his first five starts in the 2023 exhibition season, had an ERA of 7.07. But Gore was good in his final exhibition start, and he was good in his Nats regular season debut. Heck, Gore, even in the inning in which he gave up the lone run that he allowed, was good. Uh, Gore, in the top of the fourth, allowed a run on a leadoff walk of Ronald Acuna Jr., a two-out single by Ozzie Albies to left field, and then a two-out RBI single by Travis Darno to center field to cut the Nats' lead to 4-1. But also for Gore in this inning were swinging strikeouts of the Braves' numbers at two, three, and six batters. Matt Olson, Austin Riley, and Marcelo Zuna. Very impressive. This was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon on Mackenzie Gore. Thing for me is getting him in the strike zone, right? And when when he does that, he's got electric stuff. Um, we saw that. I mean, you know, he, he fell behind, you know, a few times, but he's able to get back in the counts because he's able to get, you know, five ball swings and misses. Um, but he's he's uh, he was good. He was really good. All his, all his pitches were were really good. Um, we talk all the time about the leadoff walks. It's something that you know we're going to keep harping on, with not just him, just with everybody. But um, I loved it. You know, he went out there and attacked, 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 and it was it was awesome. Yes, it was. When you talk about the young, promising pitchers who the Nats have, and you know the Nats don't have nearly enough young, promising pitchers, but among those who the Nats do have, it is Mackenzie Gore who is perceived to have the highest ceiling. Uh, the San Diego Padres took Gore with the number three pick in the 2017 MLB draft out of a high school in North Carolina. Yeah, Gore was a number three pick in an MLB draft. You know, he entered the 2021 season as the number six prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Uh, This guy has been viewed as a high-level prospect. This season is his age 24 season. He was one of the six players and five prospects who the Nats acquired from the Padres in the mega trade of outfielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell to the Padres last August 2nd. Now, Gore ended up not pitching for the Nats at the major league level in the 2022 regular season. He, at the time of being acquired by the Nats, was dealing with left elbow inflammation, and he ended up only pitching for AAA Rochester, and he didn't exactly kill it for AAA Rochester. Uh, Gore, over four starts for Rochester, last September had an ERA of 525, but he, on Sunday afternoon, in his Nats regular season debut, was good despite facing a very good lineup in that of the Braves. Uh, just ask Josiah Gray <laughs> about that Braves lineup. Uh, Gray, in the Nats, 7-1 loss to the Braves on Saturday, allowed five runs in five innings. Disappointing performance. He gave up seven hits, three home runs, and four singles. He issued two walks and a run-scoring wild pitch. He recorded four strikeouts. He, over his five innings, threw 87 pitches, 52 strikes versus 35 balls. Gray's cutter was not working and the results were not good, but nothing was worse than those home runs. Josiah Gray, over his first two major league regular seasons, 2021 and 2022, gave up a staggering 57 home runs in 219 and a third innings. The guy has a home run problem. He knows it. The Nats know it. We all know it. 
Uh, Gray spent the offseason and spent the exhibition season, an exhibition season, by the way, in which he was terrific, working on the home run problem, including working on his mechanics. And then what happened in his first start of the 2023 regular season? He gave up three home runs. And it wasn't even just that. Gray in the top of the first allowed two runs on two solo homers to the first two batters he faced in this regular season. Gray gave up a leadoff homer to Ronald Acuna Jr. to left field, and Gray gave up that homer on an 0-2 pitch, and Gray then gave up a solo homer to Matt Olson on a bomb to right center field. Uh, that homer went a projected 406 feet per stat cast. So two batters into Josiah Gray's 2023 regular season, the guy had given up two home runs. Also, Gray in the top of the fourth, Gave up a one-out solo homer to Marcelo Zuna to left field. That homer went a projected 429 feet per stat cast. Uh, Believe it or not, Josiah Gray during the 2023 exhibition season did not allow a single home run. Uh, So much for that. The home run problem right back to being in full effect on Saturday. Uh, Josiah Gray for the 2022 regular season gave up a major league worst 38 home runs, also issued a National League worst 66 walks. Now, Gray on Saturday only issued two walks, but you know, sometimes it's not what but when. Gray in the top of the third allowed two runs on three singles, a walk, and a run scoring wild pitch, which came out of ball four to Ozzie Albies on a two out walk. So only two walks, but uh, one of them was costly. Very disappointing to see Josiah Gray begin his regular season like this. Uh, It was only one start, so I mean, you're not going to go crazy over it, but you know, you hated to see a familiar problem, the home run problem still being a problem. Uh, Josiah Gray is not as well-regarded of a young pitcher as Mackenzie Gore is, but you know, Gray still has been well-regarded. Remember, Gray and catcher Kate Barrett Ruiz were the headline prospects in a crop of four prospects who the Nats got from the Los Angeles Dodgers for starting pitcher Max Scherzer and shortstop Trey Turner in a trade that was finalized on July 31st, 2021. Uh, The Nats' offense in losing two or three games to the Braves was not good. Uh, The Nats, over the three games, totaled just seven runs, four of which came in the bottom of the first on Sunday afternoon. Uh, The Nats, over the three games, had a team OPS of just 576. Some standouts, though. Uh, K-Bet Ruiz, he was the Nats' starting catcher in all three games. He, on Saturday, went two for four with a solo homer and a single. Uh, Ruiz in the Nats' one-run ninth smashed a one-out solo homer to the upper deck in right field for the Nats' first home run of the 2023 regular season. The homer winner projected 407 feet per stat cast. And Ruiz on Sunday afternoon, 0 for 2 with two walks, including a bases loaded walk. Uh, Lane Thomas had a good series. He was the Nats starting right fielder in all three games. He on Saturday went 2 for 3 with a double and a single and made a nice catch. Uh, Thomas in the top of the seventh, a leaping backhanded catch of a deep fly ball by Ronald Acuna Jr. while falling into the right field wall for the first out. And Thomas on Sunday afternoon, two for four with two first pitch singles. A few other items from the Nats weekend. Uh, The Nats on Sunday morning did put a player on the 10-day injured list, placed outfielder Corey Dickerson on the 10-day IL due to a left calf strain. Uh, The idea was for Dickerson and Alex Call to platoon in left field, but Dickerson 
got hurt in the loss on Saturday. Uh, also, the Nats do have a new catcher, uh, albeit for the minors, at least for now. Uh, the Nats on Saturday signed veteran catcher Kevin Ploiecki to a minor league contract. Uh, this is his age 32 season. He's probably best known for his time with the New York Mets, but he also has played for the Cleveland Indians, Boston Red Sox, and Texas Rangers. The Nats' top two catchers at the major league level are Kate Ruiz and Riley Adams, but another catcher, Israel Pineda, is on the 10-day IL due to a right finger fracture, and this signing of Ploiecki is a sign that the Nats are not expecting Pineda back anytime soon. Additionally, uh, the Nats' bullpen, really good stuff in that win on Sunday afternoon. Four Nats relievers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings. Uh, Hunter Harvey faced one batter but got two key outs. He came into the game in the top of the six with runners at the corners, one out, and the Nats nursing a 4-1 lead, but he induced a 4-6-3 double play off the bat of Ozzy Albies. Uh, Erasmo Ramirez tossed a scoreless top of the seventh. Carl Edwards Jr. tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. And Kyle Finnegan, a perfect top of the ninth for the save. And we, with the Nats bullpen on Saturday, had something rare. Two Nats relievers making their Major League regular season debuts. Uh, So actually, three Nats relievers made their Nats regular season debuts, but two of those relievers made their Major League regular season debuts. Uh, Anthony Bonda tossed a scoreless top of the sixth. Thaddeus Ward did give up two runs in two innings as he, in the top of the seventh, gave up a one-out two-run opposite field home run by Matt Olson to left center field for a 7-0 Braves lead. That homer going a projected 420 feet per stat cast. Uh, but Hobie Harris, a scoreless top of the ninth. Both Ward and Harris made their Major League regular season debuts, marking just the second time since the Nats franchise moved to Washington, D.C. in the 2004-2005 offseason that two Nats pitchers made their Major League regular season debuts in the same game. And how about the times? of games two and three in this series. Now, the game one loss took three hours, eight minutes, due in large part to the Nats starting pitcher in that game, Patrick Corbin, throwing a whopping 85 pitches over his mere three innings of work. But game two took just two hours, 21 minutes, and game three took just two hours, 17 minutes. The pitch clock system that Major League Baseball is using for this season is a beautiful thing. Should have been put into effect years ago. There was never any good reason for Major League regular season games to last for well over three hours as the games so often have. And the early returns are that this pitch clock system is making a major impact. I love to see it. Great job by the commissioner of MLB, Rob Manfred, on pushing this through. Uh, Next up for the Nats is a three-game series against the Tampa Bay Rays at Nationals Park. Game one Monday night at 7.05, Trevor Williams will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two Tuesday night at 7.05, Chad Cool will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game three Wednesday afternoon at 1.05, Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, it now is official. The Wizards have been eliminated from playoff contention for this NBA season. Uh, This happened on Sunday. This is a good thing that has happened. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know that I, as a Wizards fan, have not at all wanted them to make this uh, Eastern Conference play-in tournament for the NBA playoffs. The Wizards, even if they would have advanced, 
from the play-in tournament to the NBA playoffs would have been going nowhere in the NBA playoffs, uh, which the team now is missing for a fourth time in five seasons. The Wizards have major big picture issues. Uh, The team needs as high of a chance to win the NBA draft lottery as is realistically possible for the team, given the standings. Although, you know, there was an argument for the Wizards to make the NBA playoffs this season, even as a going nowhere team, because this year is the first year in which the first round pick that the Wizards traded to the Houston Rockets in the John Wall trade in December 2020 can convey. Remember the terms of that trade, the Wizards dealt Wall and a protected first round pick to the Rockets for Russell Westbrook. But anyway, what has become quite clear, and this is notable, is that the Wizards have become just fine losing down the stretch of this regular season and have become just fine with missing the Eastern Conference play-in tournament. Now, the Wizards will never say this, but in sports, as is the case in life, you go by the actions, not the words. Now, look, those Wizards players who have been playing have been trying to win. I'm not saying that Wizards players aren't trying to win, but the Wizards in who they have been playing have been very clearly communicating that they as an organization are just fine losing and missing the Eastern Conference playing tournament. Uh, two games for the Wizards over the weekend. Friday night, a 116-109 loss to the Orlando Magic at Capital One Arena. The Wizards blew a 16-point third quarter lead. They lost the fourth quarter 31-13. Yes, 13 points in the fourth quarter. The Wizards in that fourth quarter got completely rattled by the Magic's zone defense, went 1 of 11 on threes and just 4 of 12 on twos and had two assists versus six turnovers. Then on Sunday evening, the Wizards lost at the New York Knicks 118-109. Uh, the Wizards blew a nine-point third quarter lead. They, in the third quarter, led 64-55, but that allowed the Knicks to go on a 59-30 run for a 20-point fourth quarter lead at 114-94. And these two games for the Wizards over the weekend featured not just significant Wizards third quarter leads that were blown, but also featured key Wizards continuing not to play. Bradley Beal now has not played in each of the Wizards' last six games due to left knee soreness. Kyle Kuzma now has not played in each of the Wizards' last seven games due to a sprained right ankle. Chris Dapps Porzingis now has not played in each of the Wizards' last two games due to a non-COVID illness, and Monte Morris on Sunday evening did not play due to right ankle soreness. Now, the Knicks on Sunday evening were without two of the team's top three scorers in Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett, but the Wizards in this game down four starters were no match for the Knicks, who outscored the Wizards in the paint 64 38. Make no mistake, the Wizards are tanking down the stretch of this season. And at this point, I would be surprised if we saw Bradley Beal play again this season, if we saw Kyle Kuzma play again this season. But with the Wizards tanking, to that I do say bravo. You know, this is what is in the best long-term interests of the Wizards. Uh, They now are 34 and 44, tied with the Magic for the fourth worst record in the Eastern Conference. The Wizards have lost 10 of their last 13 games and have lost 12 of the team's last 16 games. Again, 
the wizards are going nowhere. And perhaps they finally do recognize that, although I still very much have doubts about that because they have never seemed to quite recognize that. But it is worth noting that the wizards are tanking down the stretch of this regular season. Uh, It has been nice to see Corey Kispert be productive lately. Uh, Kispert, who the Wizards took with the number 15 pick in the 2021 NBA draft, has been playing a lot and has been doing well. In fact, he in each game over the weekend set an NBA career regular season single game high for points. Uh, Friday night, Kispert in 41 minutes, 52 seconds as a starter went 9 of 14 on threes. And those were his only shot attempts in the game. He did not attempt a single two-point shot or a single free throw. But 9 of 14 on threes, he finished with 27 points and three rebounds. And then on Sunday evening, Kispert in 34 minutes, four seconds as a starter, four of 11 on threes, six of eight on twos, five of five on free throws. He finished with 29 points and three rebounds. Uh, We also have been seeing a lot of Denny Avdia, who the Wizards took with the number nine pick in the 2020 NBA draft. He did not have a great weekend. Uh, Friday night, Denny had a terrible game in terms of shooting 31 minutes, 48 seconds as a starter. He went a woeful two of 14 from the field, 0 of 6 on threes, just two of eight on twos. He also went two of three on free throws. He finished with just six points. He did also have six rebounds and four assists versus one turnover. And then on Sunday evening, Denny in 34 minutes, 25 seconds as a starter committed a whopping eight turnovers. Uh, He went just two of five on twos, scored just nine points, grabbed just three rebounds. He also went one of three on threes, two of two on free throws. Did also finish with five assists and three steals. Uh, Also, Johnny Davis, who the Wizards took with the Number 10 pick in the 2022 NBA draft. He, for the most part, has had a lost rookie season. But Davis on Sunday evening, 30 minutes, 13 seconds as a starter. Two of six on threes, four of five on twos. to go just two of four on free throws. But he finished with 16 points, six rebounds, and three assists versus no turnovers. Uh, Daniel Gafford on Friday night returned from a one-game absence caused by left foot soreness, and he was good. 32 minutes, 56 seconds as a starter. He went 8 of 14 from the field, all twos, and 2 of 3 on free throws, and he finished with 18 points, 13 rebounds, including 7 offensive boards and 2 blocks, although he did have 1 assist versus 3 turnovers, and he was part of a Wizards defense that got destroyed by six foot ten Paolo Bancaro, who the Magic took with the number one pick in the 2022 NBA draft. Bancaro on Friday night, 33 minutes, 45 seconds as a starter, one of three on threes, seven of 14 on twos, 13 of 14 on free throws. He finished with 30 points, 12 rebounds, six assists versus two turnovers and three blocks. You see, that is the kind of player who you can get with a high pick in an NBA draft. Uh, The Wizards have just four games left in this regular season. Next up, home to the NBA-leading Milwaukee Bucks, Tuesday night at 7. Well, the Capitals over the weekend played just one game. Uh, The result was a loss, a 5-2 loss to the New York Rangers at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon. Uh, The Caps have just five games left in this NHL regular season, and it's just a matter of time until the Caps are officially eliminated from postseason contention. The Caps at this point are clinging to their hopes of making 
the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, by a string, by a piece of floss. <laughs> uh, the Caps now are just 12, 21, and 3 since their 22, 13, and 6 start. They now are what is known as NHL 500, 34, 34, and 9 is the overall record, even though, yes, the nine represents non-regulation losses as opposed to ties. Uh, No more ties in the NHL. That's been the case for years now. Uh, The Caps have 77 points, nine points behind the Pittsburgh Penguins for the Eastern Conference's second and final wildcard spot. And the Caps are last in the Eastern Conference wildcard standings among those teams that have not been officially eliminated from postseason contention. Now, the Caps and the Detroit Red Wings both have 77 points, but the Caps are behind the Red Wings due to having played 77 regular season games, whereas the Red Wings have played 76 regular season games. Uh, This was Caps head coach Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not where we want to be, but the bottom line is, you know, we we had a game today, and we needed to do better. Uh, same thing will go through when we wake up, go to practice the next day, and play the next game. Like we got a responsibility to do our job, do it well. Today we didn't do it well enough. Um, you know, we haven't done it well enough where we sit in the position that we sit in. So it's, you know, it's of our own doing of where we're at right now, and um, you know, we can we can be better. We can be better than we were today. And so does it work against you a little bit? Yeah, I think so. You know, from a from a confidence standpoint of coming in, or um, you know, the thought of moving on to the postseason, and you're not, and that's coming coming backwards at us. But we got to fight through that and be better than we were today. Yeah, Sunday afternoon's loss was yet another game in which the Caps got stomped. I mean, again, the final score was five two. Uh, the Caps in the third period trailed four one. Uh, Darcy Kemper was the cap starting goaltender, but he stopped just 29 of the 34 shots on goal that he faced. Kemper, per natural stat trick, stopped just 8 of the 12 high danger shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Winger Alex Ovechkin got ejected. Yeah, Ovi got tossed. Uh, He had a primary assist, but also just one shot on goal and just three total shot attempts. And he's 16-29 into the third period, received a two-minute cross-checking minor and a 10-minute game misconduct for uh, hacking at Rangers center Barclay Goudreau of Goudreau having given Ovechkin a uh, forearm shiver into an official on the boards, and yet no call was made on that. Uh, We off Ovechkin's penalties then got a total of four five-minute fighting majors, including those for two caps, a winger Tom Wilson and defenseman Martin Fehervari. Here was Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Sunday afternoon on Ovi getting ejected. Well, I think he's frustrated that there was something that was missed down the other end, and so he was frustrated coming back in. And um, listen, our guys played hard with with emotion, but um, there's, there's there's some of the goals that we let in. There's things that we could have and needed to do better defensively. We had numbers back, and I think it all kind of it's winding in, right? A missed call, you know, you, you have to kill the Sheary penalty and um, then there's a missed call and the frustration grows a little bit and um, you know there's things I think from a from a you look at the scoreboard and so those situations to me they add up a little bit and you get frustrated but um, you know probably to be expected.
Well, as for some positives for the Caps on Sunday afternoon, center Dylan Strom had a second period even-strength goal, giving him 58 points for this regular season, surpassing his previous NHL regular season best of 57 points. Uh, winger Alexi Protis had a third period even-strength goal. Defenseman John Carlson had two assists and a game-high three-block shots. Winger Sonny Milano was back. He returned from a three-game absence caused by an upper body injury that he suffered in the Caps 6-1 win over the Chicago Blackhawks at Capital One Arena on March 23rd. And Milano on Sunday afternoon was number one on the Caps in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick at 65. The Caps with Milano on the ice in five-on-five situations in the game had 13 shot attempts versus allowing seven shot attempts. And how about this? So goaltender Charlie Lindgren on Sunday afternoon was unavailable due to a non-COVID illness. And so the Caps backup goaltender for the game was Mitchell Gibson, who the Caps on Sunday morning signed to what's called an amateur tryout agreement, an ATO. The Caps took Gibson in the fourth round of the 2018 NHL draft. He has played for Harvard University in its 2022-2023 season, but he on Sunday afternoon was the Caps' number two goaltender. Pretty cool. The Caps, believe it or not, did not have the salary cap space to recall a backup goaltender for this game, so they had to go with Gibson on an ATO. Uh, additionally, uh, defenseman Trevor Van Riemsdyk did not play due to an upper body injury, and winger TJ Oshie did not play due to an upper body injury that he suffered in the camp's 5-1 loss at the Tampa Bay Lightning this past Thursday night, and uh, also remaining out for the camps due to injury were wingers Connor Brown and Carl Haglin. The camp's next game is not until Thursday night. The camp's uh, are at the second worst team in the Eastern Conference, the Montreal Canadiens, Thursday night at 7. So the Nationals began their 2023 regular season with two losses in three games, and so did the Orioles. Uh, they lost two or three games at the Boston Red Sox in a wild series. Uh, Thursday afternoon, opening day, a 10-9 win in which the O's had to hold on tight to win. Uh, the O's allowed five runs over the eighth and ninth innings. Saturday, a 9-8 walk-off loss in a gut punch of a loss as the O's blew a 7-1 third inning lead, and then Sunday afternoon a 9-5 loss. We have in baseball what is called run prevention. Uh, Run prevention is pitching and defense. The Orioles' run prevention in this series uh, was horrendous. (laughs) Uh, The Orioles' starting pitching was bad. Uh, Kyle Gibson in the 10-9 win on Thursday afternoon in his Orioles' regular season debut. Four runs in five innings, although he pitched better than that final line indicated. Two of the runs that were charged to him were inherited runners who scored with the Orioles' bullpen at work. And Gibson was failed multiple times by his defense. But Dean Kramer in that 9-8 walk-off loss on Saturday, five runs in three innings. He gave up six hits, two homers, a triple, a double and two singles. He issued a walk and a wild pitch, recorded three strikeouts. And Cole Urban in the 9-5 loss on Sunday afternoon in his Orioles regular season debut, six runs in four innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles, issued two walks, recorded four strikeouts. Uh, Orioles starters in the series combined for a mere 12 innings. That was it. Uh, The Orioles' relief pitching was bad. Orioles' relievers in the series over 13 and two-thirds innings at ERA of 593 and a whip of 154. 
And the Orioles' outfield defense, major problem. So two of the hits off Kyle Gibson in that 10-9 win on Thursday afternoon could have been caught for outs. A center fielder Cedric Mullins in the Red Sox's one-run first failed to catch a fly ball to deep left center field for what went down as a leadoff triple by Alex Verdugo. Mullins was on the warning track and allowed the ball to land beyond his outstretched glove, perhaps due to the wind and or sun, but whatever the case, the catch was not made. And right fielder Austin Hayes in the Red Sox's one-run fourth allowed the ball to go over his head for a leadoff ground rule double by Rafael Devers. But nothing was worse than what happened on Saturday. Uh, reliever Felix Batista in that 9-8 walk-off loss on Saturday gave up a walk-off, two-out, two-run homer to Adam Duvall over the Green Monster in left field as the O's lost a game in which they had a 7-1 third inning lead. But both of the runs were unearned. Why? The Red Sox's previous batter, Masataka Yoshida, reached base via a two-out fielding error by left fielder Ryan McKenna, who dropped a routine fly ball that should have resulted in the end of the game. The game was in the glove. Uh, but McKenna, who did not try to make the catch with two hands, dropped the ball. Just a brutal killer of an error. Uh, Adam Duvall had a huge game. Two homers, a triple, a double, and five RBI. But that error was impossible not to think about it if you are an O's fan. Uh, it's a shame because the O's in this series hit like crazy. Uh, the O's over the three games totaled 23 runs had a team batting average of 339, had a team on base percentage of 426, had a team slugging percentage of 607, and went 10 for 10 on stolen bases. Uh, the O's in each of their first two games had a player go 5 for 5. Adley Rutschman in the 10-9 win on Thursday afternoon was the Orioles starting catcher and number two batter. He went 5 for 5 with a solo homer, four singles and a walk. So he got on base in all six of his plate appearances. Didn't do a lot the rest of the series, but he on Thursday afternoon was outstanding. And Austin Hayes in the 9-8 walk-off loss on Saturday as the Orioles starting right fielder and number five batter, five for five, with a solo homer, two doubles, and two singles. And he had an outfield assist. Uh, also, Cedric Mullins had a big series. He was the Orioles starting center fielder in all three games, went five for 13 with two homers, three singles, and two walks. And he went three for three on stolen bases. Uh, Mullins in the 9-5 loss on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles' number one batter, two for five with a solo homer, and a two-run single, and Adam Frazier got off to a nice start as an Oriole. Frazier on Thursday afternoon was the Orioles' starting second baseman and number eight batter. He, in his Orioles' regular season debut, went two for four with two doubles, a walk, and a stolen base. And Frazier on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles' starting second baseman and number eight batter, three for four with a two-run homer, a double, and a single. But the O's lost two of the three games in the series. Uh, here were a series of exchanges with O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday afternoon. Brandon, how challenging was it in the series when the starters combined 12 innings? Yeah, it was... Uh... We just didn't have our best series on the mound, and uh, need to improve on that. But uh, I think we will. What did you think of Cole today? You know, the first inning. I mean, we had <laughs> went in this game a little, little short already in the bullpen, and and uh, first inning, thirty plus pitches. You were, I thought he did a great job after that to really give us give us some like get us into the fifth inning at least. Uh, but 
um, kind of living on the edges there. A lot of for me, a lot of calls didn't go his way in the strike zone. Uh, extended some, extended some, uh, some counts and, and uh, a lot of deep counts. But I thought the stuff was okay. Um, you know, he gave us a chance. Uh, but we just, you know, we swung about well. We just got to pitch a little bit better. It's, it's three games, so it's just three games. But do you feel like you guys could have walked out of here winning at least two or all three of these? Well, we swung the bat well enough to, um, but we got got to pitch and play defense, and we didn't have our best series on the mound or or defensively. And uh, um, those are two things we had we had to do better to win series in, in this league. No doubt, uh, the two biggest strengths for the O's in their big step forward season of last season were their pitching and defense. Their offense was inconsistent. Well, <laughs> the exact opposite was the case in their first series of this regular season. Pitching and defense bad, offense great. Uh, next up for the O's is the three-game series at the Texas Rangers. Game one, Monday night at 8.05. Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 8.05. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher in Game 3 Wednesday afternoon at 2.05. Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 542. We'll have plenty for you on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's when we get a three-game series against the Tampa Bay Rays at Nationals Park on Monday night at 7.05. The O's will get a three-game series at the Texas Rangers Monday night at 8.05. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I just want it to be done. (laughs) And I think that's what everybody else would like, too, including Dan and Tanya.